Welcome to Soul Path Parenting, the podcast that explores how we set our kids up to live their best lives from the start, and how we stay conscious, inspired, and sane while we do it. I'm your host, Amy Breeze Cooper. For any parent who's listening that's got a child that's going through stuff, this isn't time to shame or blame you. It's a time to love you and say, wow, if my child doesn't know how to tolerate their emotions or regulate them, I might not either. And it's not that I failed. It's that no one knew how to teach me this either. So it's it's like a deficit in the environment in which we can't teach somebody what we don't know. Hi, everybody, and thank you so much for joining us for episode 21. I am delighted that you're here, and I just wanted to start out first by saying that I hope everyone is healthy and staying grounded, and I'm just really honored that you're taking some time for yourself to get inspired and connect with the ideas that we're sharing on this podcast. Right now, most of you and and we here um, in, I'm now in Broomfield, Colorado, are either self-quarantined or even under shelter-in-place orders because of the coronavirus. And I just want to let you know that I'm really sending out love to everybody on the other end of this um, conversation and that the conversation today, while if you're, if you're listening past this time of, of what we're calling a crisis is still going to be highly relevant to you. It was really my intention to get this out now and, and, and have it be something that can be a contribution to you while you are going through these challenging and uncertain times. And if you recognize the voice in the upfront from having listened to the podcast before, you'll remember Becca Armstrong, who shared with us a few episodes ago, some really amazing insights about how the subconscious mind works. And today she's going to be sharing with us how we can cope with uncertainty, all of us, as well as really unique and powerful perspectives on anxiety and depression, as well as diagnoses like ADD and ADHD. I think you're going to find her perspective to be really revealing about a new way of seeing some of the things that may be going on with us or our kids. One last note that I want to make is if it sounds like I'm recording this from an empty room Room. Uh, that is indeed the case. I recorded this on our first day in our new home. In fact, my first hour in my new home. And so if it sounds like I'm sitting in an empty room, that's because to some extent I still am. Uh, we'll get some, we'll get some noise, uh, some sound buffering in here, but for the time being, I appreciate you listening in spite of some of the echoiness that you might be hearing. Uh, let's dive into the interview with Becca. I'm just delighted to bring this to you today. Hi, Becca, and welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm really excited about what we get to explore today. Yeah, and so it's interesting because as we had planned this episode maybe a month and a half ago, we had planned to talk about common diagnoses that both adults and children have, depression, anxiety, ADD, ADHD, and it occurs to me that it's still such an important conversation and 
there's a lot going on for just everyone when it relates to anxiety and possibly even, you know, hopefully not as much in depression, but that can come on in these circumstances with what's going on with the coronavirus. So that's what we're going to be delving into today. And first, I just want to ask, how how are you doing with everything going on? Well, I'm doing very well. And it's never a more important time to practice all of the resources that I teach and I help people to learn uh, the now. Uh, we can certainly go into worry, doubt, and fear, or we can use these opportunities to stay very connected in our now moments and in our resources. So we just, in our yeah. household, have made it a priority uh, and getting lots of sleep and taking very good care of ourselves, uh, as well as it, my entire family is here. Uh, I'm working from my home mm-hmm. office and uh, my husband's a chef and he's Lucky his restaurant you. is closed right now. <laughs> Lucky you. And <laughs> we're eating very, very well. Uh, and then I've got, you know, two daughters. So also determining how we're going to relate to each other, how we're going to communicate, uh, how we're going to share space as well as recognize and respect the time when we need to have a long time yeah. uh, and how we're going to navigate that together uh, during this uncertain time window. So we're doing well, but it's been very intentional to do well. Right. <laughs> I'd love to just delve a little deeper into your own. You talked about kind of resources and practices. You mentioned getting good sleep. What else in your practice might be uh, something our listeners could borrow from? Sleep is a, a key priority. Uh, most of us don't realize that when we go into fight, flight, and freeze, sleep can be affected. And it's affected as a coping mechanism. Uh, so uh, being very diligent around what we do during our day, how we transition into our nighttime can impact the quality of sleep that we get. Uh, the National Re- or National Institute of Health has done a lot of research on sleep, and a lot of it is unknown because there just really wasn't any benefit or money, you know, uh, to be mm. made from publicizing or or making those studies more um, known in the public eye. Uh, however, when you get eight to nine and a half hours of sleep a night, your system restores, repairs, uh, regenerates itself. And er, things like anxiety and depression, as well as physiological uh, elements uh, and, and immune system are impacted in a very beneficial way. As a matter of fact, it can cause what's called clinical remission. So these things heal. So as we get older, we're also taught that we adults need less sleep. And that is also a myth. Uh, oh, I have personally found that I'm best at like nine hours of sleep. And it's one of those things where I envy the people that are like, no, no, I need six. And I go, wow, that would be so convenient. But that's just not when I'm at my best. We can survive on six to seven. uh, And yet eight to nine and a half hours is our our minimum for being able to be at our best, just like you're experiencing. Uh, yeah, we are biological beings. And actually, during winter months, the studies really discovered that we would hibernate. So we'd be sleeping about 14 hours a night, uh, when the nights are long, and darkness is uh, more prevalent. 
Uh, and then that that shortens as we get into summer months. However, it stays around eight hours if we just sleep cyclically and uh, in those light, dark cycles. So sleep is wow. A so we could really be sleeping like twelve hours a night at this point, based on daylight or something like that. Imagine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's nothing wrong with it. People say, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm sleeping so much. It's like, oh, yes, believe it, yeah. do it, celebrate yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so even during this time where we're all home, uh, we really do have a mindfulness around, you know, still going to sleep, getting quality sleep. Uh, another element that a lot of people don't know about is sleep that happens before 10 o'clock is more restorative than sleep that happens after 10 o'clock. Why would that be? Uh, it has to do with our circadian rhythms oh. and our our sleep cycles. Uh, sleep cycles are around 90 minutes. And as our melatonin builds, uh, we have deeper REM phases, longer REM phases. And then as we move toward light and our melatonin slows down, uh, in production, it starts to convert over into serotonin. Uh, what um, our our REM cycles shorten. Right. So when we fall asleep before ten o'clock, that those hours are much more restorative because of our cycles than if we sleep the same number of hours but fall asleep after ten o'clock. Um, so yes, teenagers are not big fans of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, and their sleep cycles actually go a little bit later for a period of time. Uh, so you can take 10 o'clock and you can scoot it to 11. Uh, but after 11, they're getting less restorative sleep. Yeah. So well, th- my teenager doesn't love it and still falls asleep around 10, 1030 yeah. if she's going to be up later. You know, <laughs> not to be a total Pollyanna about this, but there are some opportunities, some bright spots in it. And it occurs to me that one of the things that we can all do is reset our schedule based on our own rhythms rather than the clock, the external clock that we're usually driven by. And what I mean by that is I spent years, decades, um, getting into the office by 8.30, going home, gosh, you know, quote unquote five, usually it was later than that, uh, six, seven o'clock at night. And in this five day a week grind, and that's really what was the driver of my schedule. And then I needed a certain amount of time to unwind and like turn off the work mind and shift. And that took me beyond 10 a lot of the time. And so my sleep schedule as well as all of my rhythms were really programmed by external clocks. And it seems to me that this being at home and working from home uh, phase that we're all in right now, uh, and truth be told, that's, you know, my normal life is working from home now, but a lot of people it's not. And it seems like an opportunity for us to listen to ourselves. The prime opportunity to listen and to restore and to perhaps create a new rhythm yeah. for ourselves, for our families, and to choose well-being. Uh, I love that you mentioned that there's a lot of positive opportunity in this time of uncertainty and crisis. And something that's coming up for a lot of clients that I'm working with is the state of guilt around some of the good things. Uh, being able to sleep a bit later, uh, you know, work in your pajamas, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, spend more time with your children. Uh, those are 
blessings and positives. And there can be some, some thought around feeling bad is a contribution to this crisis. Like, oh, I can't be glad about this. I need to be worried and feel bad about, you know, what's going on. It's like, well, actually the biggest contribution you can make is by having a positive relationship to what's negative. Yeah. Uh, Be excited about working in your pajamas. Be excited about being able to sleep, you know, in a little bit longer. Be excited around lingering at the dinner table and, you know, playing games together. Yeah. Uh, Let yourself feel the joy because the more we allow ourselves to feel good, the more we're actually able to impact our environment and yeah. contribute to healing. A couple of things came to mind. Firstly, I could not agree more. I do believe that we're all energetically connected and the higher vibe we are, the more con- contribution to healing that can be. And also you just expanded what I was thinking in terms of this reset in our entire relationship to time. And I have to say, I used to be so addicted to the doing that (laughs) I became very resistant to being in the moment and slowing down. It just felt so um, counterintuitive, unnatural to me. And in some ways it still does. I like to, you know, be accomplishing things and the doing feels really good. And this is just such a huge opportunity for us to all step into the being and slow down. And maybe this reset can outlast this crisis, you know, and we can enjoy more quality time together. Just being. Yes. Yes. We are not human doings. (laughs) We are human beings. Yeah. And, and it's a, it's a, a gift that we get to bring to our children because they don't learn from what we say. They learn from who we be. Uh, And there is room in our lives to be. And the more that we learn to expand in that, the more we become efficient at anything we do. Uh, And so often we measure our value and our worth based on what we do and the feedback that we receive from others based on what we do, which really makes us what's called extrinsically defined and determined. We're determined by our environment. That's not how we're built. We are built to know that we are valuable because we breathe, because we are. We're good enough. And we came into this world good enough. Yeah. So being who we are and allowing ourselves to start paying attention to how to be ourselves in this now moment uh, really is so great because then we'll become a little bit more whole, uh, participatory in our wholeness whenever we do something. I love that. (laughs) And I'm a big fan of sitting down and staring at a wall and calling that enormously productive. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) I I think that's what I end up by accident doing. I I really treasure my shower time. (laughs) It's similar idea. Yeah. I don't choose to sit and stare at a wall, but probably would be equally sort of wonderful and reconnecting for me. Maybe I will try that. So you mentioned guilt as one of the themes that you're hearing come up from your clients. And I wondered in this crisis, if there are other things that you're hearing from your clients and kind of how you're helping them through, because I think our listeners might benefit from that as well. Certainly. The what if game is prevalent for a lot of people. And the what if game is the what if this terrible thing happens? What if this awful thing happens? What if this occurs? Uh, all of these 
scary, scary thoughts. And when we ignite them, they take us down that path. And then they take us down another path that's similar and another path that's similar. Uh, and then we get into an experience of catastrophizing. So what I've been bringing to my clients and helping them with is to get out of the what if and really bring the what if into now. So it's the, you know, what if someone in our family, you know, is diagnosed or comes down with COVID-19? If that's not occurring right now, the mind doesn't know what to do with it. So it starts to spin it. So what I have clients do is say, okay, imagine it's happened. It's an awful thing. And yet the mind doesn't know what to do with a what if. So if we actually imagine, okay, so if that happened and that was going on right now, what would I do? Mm -hmm. You know, what would I think? What would I feel? What would I do? And I actually have them come up with what they would do. Not hypothetically, but it's like, give yourself the ability to identify actions that make something better or create a solution because we might not be able to get all the way to better. So with that, the mind starts to say, oh, okay, there's something. And when you imagine it on a subconscious level, you're experiencing it. The mind doesn't know the difference between imagined and reality happening around us. So in that process, you're bringing forward solutions, results, you know, things that are uh, helpful, mm -hmm. that move forward, you know, resource, and the mind stops spinning. And then once you say, okay, well, we'd, you know, quarantine them here, and we do this, and we do that, da, 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 and, you know, and then we'd make it through. The mind says, okay, good, done, check. I've survived that. Right. And then it lets it go. Uh, then the next thing I have them do is to get into what's actually happening now. Well, what's actually happening now is we're all safe and everybody's healthy. And that was just a cold. My daughter came down with a fever uh, and she slipped a rib at the same time she had this fever come on and was having chest pain when she breathed. So we're on the phone with doctors and triage nurses and trying to identify whether we need to get her from the mountains to Lone Tree to be tested. Uh, and that was a scary time. And yet she ended up being fine. So in that moment, it's like, okay, do we know she has COVID-19? No. What does she have? She has a fever. She has pain, but we don't know what it is. So what can we do? Well, they wanted us to give her a whole bunch of Advil ibuprofen. Okay. Then lots of fluids, then lots of vitamin C. These are things that we could do at that moment. And then we just had to be where we were. Gratitude. We watched movies. We laughed. We had a good time. And then actually a couple of days after that, her fever broke. They didn't think she had it and she was fine. This is the tricky thing. It's like, this is cold and flu season. Yeah. So I, I totally relate to that. Every, every morning when I wake up, I'm like checking in with my, I have, you know, oh, I feel a twinge of something and I am not an anxiety or paranoid person. And it still creeps in this thought of like, <gasps> yeah, do I have it? Right. So it's so important to say, okay, what's going on right yeah. now? So the first thing is deal with the worry thoughts, take it out of worry, take it into an event. 
solve it. Yeah. Even if you're doing it on the imaginary plane and then get back into your now and say, what is, what's really going on right now? If I have a twinge, okay, well, what do I want to do about the twinge? Yeah. Uh, and, and instead of doing the, what if look for fact. Yeah. And if you don't have a fact, let yourself just not have a fact. Don't draw a conclusion. Just stay curious. Uh, and that's really helpful because catastrophizing is a process that our mind can do and it can really spin out. Uh, and there is no solution to that. Right. Uh, so when we, we take it from a what if into an event, then we, are, we action some type of better or solution. Our mind will actually stop. Uh, and I'm somebody who studies the electromagnetic rhythms and and uh, what comes off of our heart we actually communicate what we think and we feel and you can measure it off the body uh as we've spoken about uh and we, you can determine this also heart math has done some really cool research being able to measure this field and see how it impacts the world around you and when you're in a resourceful state you're in a in a, a pattern a wave pattern that's called coherence and coherence can positively impact 750,000 people around you. Oh. So when people are saying, well, what do I do? How do I contribute? How do I impact my children? How do I deal with this? The first thing is bring yourself into a state of coherence. And there's a wonderful three-minute exercise that I teach clients that basically is the breath into the count of five, out to the count of five. Imagining that you're breathing in and out through your heart uh, and you don't hold your breath anywhere because whenever we breathe and hold it, in our inhale or exhale, our mind and our body goes, what's wrong? Mm. <laughs> and so when we breathe in a wave-like pattern and allow our inhale to turn into the exhale and we elongate it to a, a comfortable count of five. We do this for three minutes while imagining ourselves in a very safe, loving space. We move into a state of heart coherence. Okay. When we go into heart coherence, our brain goes into a state of coherence. Our heart and our brain sync up and create heart-brain coherence. And then our physiology joins in and we have something called psychophysiological coherence. That coherent wave can actually impact someone else who's freaking out and is incoherent, mm. and it can help them just in a feeling sense uh, to move more into coherence. And again, you can impact 750,000 people around you by accessing this yourself, being this yourself. I love um, this and I'm going to do this. So I just want to ask a couple of questions to make sure that I and my listeners are dialed in on this. I'm already probably starting to breathe this way. I have a tendency to just dive right in. Um, so what you're saying is you breathe into the count of five, you breathe out to the count of five, you do not hold on either end of that, and you just progress through that wave over and over again for three minutes. And do you keep your eyes open or closed? Does it matter where you are when you do this? You can have your eyes open or closed. Uh, I've done this driving along the highway, so it's not a meditative, come out of your body kind of thing. Okay. Uh, when you're first practicing it, or you can close your eyes and imagine yourself in a restorative, restful, safe place, maybe your own inner retreat, that can be wonderful and kind of a, an elevated practice of it. Uh, so yeah, eyes open, eyes closed. If you have the opportunity to close your eyes and imagine being in your own 
safe inner retreat that can be an elevation to it. Uh, and you really can't mess it up. I love it. Uh, even if you find yourself holding, that's your body giving you feedback through your breath and you just soften. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm tense in my chest. Okay. Soften your chest. Uh, I'm holding my breath when I inhale. Okay. Soften your breath when you inhale, let it turn like a wheel or a wave, uh, three minutes of it. It, actually, HeartMath has studied it, and they've seen that it holds coherence for six hours. I did a case study within my practice, and my participants uh, stayed coherent for 24 hours. Wow. Uh, and it has a compounding effect. Uh, so if you have children that have fears, uh, while you're speaking with them, pay attention to your breath. Let it start flowing like a wave. Pace in with that wave and have the conversation from there. And your coherence will actually suggest them into coherence. Uh, you can even gather them on, on your lap. I, I have a 17 year old now and I could probably, if she was really freaked out, gather her on my lap and just start breathing. Uh, and it, it actually our breath suggests to other people's breath. Mm -hmm. So when we start breathing in a pattern, they start breathing in that pattern. Uh, and it's a nonverbal way of communicating and it's a very grounding, centering and resourceful way to communicate. Uh, then you can have the conversations that will be more, um, you know, easy and receptive, yeah. uh, around, you know, dissolving those fears. Fears are not reality. Right. So what we make up in our mind is not actually what's occurring and it's best that we make up as little as possible that feels bad. And if we're going to make anything up, let's make up things that feel really, really good and stay coherent. So let's go into that a little bit because you brought up this kind of scenario of a, of a child. It could even be as old as 17 year old child having <laughs> fears come up. Um, are there approaches or, or, um, are, do you have thoughts on how we might help our kids through the fears that they might be having hearing all of this? And, you know, when you're young, there's even more uncertainty because you have less context mm -hmm. for what's going on. The first thing to mention is children ask why, because they really want to understand. So the repetitive why is not to annoy or irritate. It's really because they're, they're shifting their lens and coming at different angles so that they can understand. And when they understand, they stop asking why. Uh, so be willing to answer the question until the why isn't there anymore. Uh, the other thing is for parents to recognize to meet the child where they're at. Mm -hmm. So give them information that is what they're asking for it's not necessary to go further. So it's wonderful to say, you know, what are your questions? What are you curious about? What can I share with you? Let them ask and then respond. And then you can ask them, does that make sense to you? Do you have any other questions? Let them lead you in what they want to know. Uh, the other thing is uh, to create an atmosphere in which you have open dialogue. When we have open dialogue and we're sharing, we are in information and resource rather than reaction and, and kind of the, the conjuring of fear. So 
children might walk around and kind of hold themselves because they're not they're trying to be a contributor to the environment. And we don't want children to do that. We want them to be able to reach out and ask for what they need and to be supported in that. Uh, and if we're not able to do it ourselves, then it's important that we're able to reach out to other professionals or friends or family members that might be able to have those conversations. So if we're not comfortable with it or we've got some reaction or fear, we need to deal with that ourselves rather than work that out with the kiddos. Uh, and if we're not able to resource or answer the question or have that conversation because of our own overwhelm or fear, then let's connect them with somebody who can be present in that conversation. Right. And it's an important thing because even though this is a crisis, my goodness, so many resources, well-being that will carry through into the future, future are getting built right. right now or have the opportunity to be. Yeah, I'm seeing that, a lot of that all around, that there's just... Um a lot of resources are being built that are around human wellness and offered up, you know, via online that maybe wouldn't have otherwise existed. So that's a really kind of cool side effect of, of all of this. Let's shift the conversation a little bit into what we were originally planning on talking about, which is diagnoses. And in our prep conversation uh, before we had had when we were preparing for these interviews, you had talked about having a different lens on the diagnoses that we talked about earlier, depression, anxiety, ADD, ADHD. I'd love to just start there with, with your lens on this. Absolutely. I am a therapist that actually really gets excited around depression. Uh, and anxiety, because they're true coping mechanisms. And I want to be very clear, I'm not saying that they are pleasant. I'm not saying they're good things uh, that we would want to select to have go on in our experience. However, we greatly misunderstand them. And I've come to understand them. I've come to recognize what they are at the causal level. Uh, how to work with them so that we can extract and bring forward the resource that they are bringing and create complete healing for people in their life. And when you really know how to work with them and you understand greater levels of what they are, uh, boy, they can be huge catapults forward into strength, well-being, transformation in your life. Uh, so uh, I love it when when you know, people come in and say, I'm tired, done. I no longer want to be anxious or depressed. It's like, great, <laughs> good. And yet we're really glad that depression or anxiety got your attention and got your attention to a level of which you were no longer willing to tolerate. Okay, great context. So someone comes in with depression or anxiety, where do you go with that? Because obviously you're not going to keep them there. So <laughs> how, you know, how do you then progress forward? When someone comes in, we'll start with depression. Uh, depression is a coping mechanism that is basically, if we turn it into a verb, a depressing of the system. So we are electrical and we're magnetic. Imagine that you have electricity that's going to run through uh, a, a, a cord and the cord cannot handle that current. That's why we have breaker systems 
you know, for our, you know, house is that if we get a surge and the electricity is more than our, you know, conductors can handle, we blow fuses. And that's great because then our house doesn't burn down. Depression is like that. It's going, it's something that's depressing our system. So we don't blow a fuse. And what, what causes it generally, sometimes there are other emotions, but very, very prevalently anger and sadness Mm. that someone does not have the ability to process through. So it's such huge voltage in their emotional charge with anger or sadness, it would blow their fuses and burn their their body down, emotional, mental, physiological. And so depression comes in to shut down the system, but you can't just shut down one part of you and keep the other parts of you open. You've got to depress the whole system. And, and that's designed to keep you alive because emotional voltage and charge when we can't handle it can really fry out the entire system. Uh, and uh, so that it's a help. And when you re- learn to recognize what it is, and then you can get to those causal elements. And I've got clients that they don't have narrative, they don't have a story around the sadness and the anger, because maybe it's something that happened in their life prior to that neurological development when you have memory that's more like a storyline. So it might just be a feeling or a sensation, but whatever it is, it was bigger than they could process at the time. So they have depressed it. Uh, and the, the more it starts to come up, and if those, those abilities to process it aren't there, the more the system will shut itself down. Uh, and and it's, it's a beautiful process when people finally start moving it and they have the capacity to move that anger. You are totally blowing my mind right now. I've never heard it, depression explained this way. And yet intuitively, this makes so much sense to me. Yeah. I mean, you, this is just an aha moment for me. Yeah. So just to sort of progress to the what people do about it, you talk about resolving this by moving the anger, moving the sadness. And could you just touch briefly on the modalities or the, the how you do that? Yes. Uh, so I'm trained in EMDR, which stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. Uh, it's a phenomenal modality. Uh, I also, throughout my practice, uh, have created a protocol called uh, Cooperative Integration. Uh, and another protocol uh, that that I call psychogenic transformation and healing. And what these modalities do allow us to get at what's that causal event, um, whether we know what it is, or we just are able to access it at that kinesthetic feeling level at the emotional level. Uh, And then we move it through. And the techniques that I'd love to use are not talk based, because honestly, the more we talk about an event, Uh, the way our mind works, we recreate it. So our memory is a reconstruction of of an event. Mm -hmm. It isn't the recall of an event. So every time we remember something, we really are remembering it. We're reconstructing it. And it's always going to be slightly different. And it's going to be bigger than it was previously. So it's always helpful for us to know whatever it is that can be known. But then we start working with it at that causal level. So it shifts at a feeling level. Uh, recently, I worked with someone who had had patterns of depression and anxiety for decades. 
uh, and uh, this had existed in in their parents and and was actually continuing in some of their children's experiences and we were able to heal something in about seven minutes Uh, (laughs) amazing and and then I got to work with their children and being able to address that pattern as well and again children actually heal faster so uh, the children were three and five minutes wow uh, and the pattern was extinguished uh, and I even, I love to have people poke at it is what I say. They try to trigger it. Let's see if we can get it to bother you again. And, and it's not there. Right. So, um, yeah. Wow. That was so fascinating about depression. I cannot wait to hear what you have to say about anxiety. Anxiety is fun. It's very different in the experience. It doesn't feel good. I wouldn't call the experience of it fun. However, the healing of it is very empowering and can be very, very fun in that anxiety, just to start off with, is not a feeling. We say, I'm feeling anxious. However, this isn't an actual feeling. It's a state. So we have the opportunity to get curious because we know we're feeling anxious because we feel it in our body and we're having an emotion. But when we say, oh, I'm, I, I'm having anxiety, it keeps us basically on the surface where we can't solve it. So when we get curious, we drop in going, what is the, what am I feeling? And it might be, I'm feeling scared. Oh, okay. Scared of what? And so what I have clients do is I have them connect with their body find this feeling in their body. And then we utilize the technique of psychogenic transformation. It's a conversation with the experience that's happening in your body to get at what is causing it, what's actually going on, and then to transform it there. And uh, the word that I love to swap anxiety for is I call anxiety the solicitor. (laughs) <laughs> the solicitor, the solicitor, like a solicitor at your doorstep. Uh-huh. Um, I was actually working for my home office and it was during um, some of the campaigning stuff and my doorbell rang, but I was in meetings. So I didn't have anybody that I was anticipating coming by. So I didn't answer the door. A short time later, my doorbell rings again. Again, I'm still in meetings. So I let it go. A short time later, my doorbell rings again. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, is one of are one of my neighbors having an issue? Is there something going on? And yet I was I was actually at that time then working with a client and I wasn't gonna ask the client to hold, so uh, I let it go. Again, a short time later, this is four times my doorbell rings. I think, okay, something big has to be going on. No, it was these two lovely ladies walking around and said, Oh, hello. <laughs> And I lean out, hi, can I help you? They say, well, we're just campaigning for so-and-so. And and we want to know if you've already chosen who you're going to, you know, vote for. And I had, so I said, yes, I have. And they said, well, any way we can change your mind? I said, no. And they said, well, if you happen to change your mind, vote for so-and-so. We'd love to have your vote. I said, thank you. Goodbye. Guess who did not ring my doorbell again? Right. They had rang my doorbell four times that day. And that's how I giggled because I went, this is exactly like anxiety. It will keep ringing your doorbell until you answer the door and you have that conversation because it's it's coming 
with a message. It's coming with a resource. And when you actually can learn how to recognize what is actually going on, what is connected at that causal level, what's the resource that this is trying to bring forward to me and into my life, and then you actually bring it in and integrate it, anxiety goes away. It stops coming up. And I have people test it, you know, go into the environments that used to trigger you, um, do rapid breathing that used to trigger you, uh, get into the fear, the phobia, the situation, uh, and it, it is not triggerable anymore. Uh, and, and so the other piece with anxiety that I want to actually connect into depression is anxiety can also be a coping mechanism. So it's not only soliciting you, you know, to deliver a message. Uh, it's also sometimes a coping mechanism for depression. So when your system is depressed low, sometimes you'll kick into a high rev, almost like a pseudo fight, flight, freeze survival response where your whole system hyper revs, and then you start to feel anxious. And it's basically your system saying, I'm trying to do life, and I'm so depressed that I need a surge of this intensity so I can get back in life. And so people will bop between anxiety and depression, anxiety being an attempt for the system to try to hyper rev above what's being depressed, to get some stuff done. And so, you know, it can kind of go back and forth. So it's either coping for depression or uh, bringing a message. And when you learn how to work with them in, uh, you know, the way that they're showing up for you, they resolve and dissolve and do not come back. And it is not a pattern that you um get triggered in later uh, events. So people who've had anxiety, it doesn't predispose you to more anxiety. As a matter of fact, it predisposes you to resourceful living going Mm -hmm. forward. Uh, So pretty cool. That is so fascinating. And I'd love to delve a little deeper into the feeling side of it, because there's an aspect of this that I'm interested in applying to myself, almost like DIY. And for my listeners, because these are the, the times that we're in right now can provoke anxiety. And so I'm curious when you talk about like identifying the feeling underneath it, what are usually the feelings that are underneath it and how do you find them? Uh, very easy. When you're feeling anxiety, scan your body, start with your body and say, okay, where am I feeling the sensation of this in my body? Uh, it might be in your solar plexus. It might be in your stomach. Uh, it might be in your heart. It might be in your throat. It might be in your head. And what I have people do is I, I say, put your hand on it. So if you're feeling it in your head, put your hand on your head. And what you're doing is you're saying, hey, I'm paying attention. You've got my attention. Now talk to me. And then it's really important to get curious rather than conclusive and ask yourself, okay, what is this feeling? So if I imagine that my body is getting my attention and it's holding an emotion for me, what's the emotion that I'm having? Now it's like, okay, I'm overwhelmed. Okay, good. Now, and, and that's the response we want to bring to it. It's like, good, okay, I'm overwhelmed. Good, now I know I'm overwhelmed. Okay, so what is, what's connected to this overwhelm? What is it that I need? And then we just get curious. And the first thing that comes to mind 
is the is the something that we want to pay attention to. So it's the there's so much that I don't have control over. Let's imagine that that's the response. I'm overwhelmed. What do I need? What's this connected to? Well, I need some control. I there's so much that I don't have control over. Okay, so what do you need to feel more in control? Well, I need to be able to know that I can affect some safety. Okay, so what's something I can do that affects safety? And we just start following, I call it follow the thread. And it's and and you're you're not thinking it, you're feeling it, and you're just responding to the first thing that comes into your awareness. And as you follow it through, and I have people keep their hand on their body the entire time because you reach the end of the thread and you go, oh, okay. Whew. And you'll always notice it's a reset breath. So you'll take a deep breath. Sometimes it can feel like a little stutter breath. It's the breath that we have after we've cried for a while and we go, oh, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> and, and it's a, it's a reset breath and you'll notice the anxiety is done because it was simply trying to get your attention. And in the example I'm offering, it's getting your attention that there's something that you're not, you know, engaging that would allow you to increase safety. Right. And by doing that, it's like, okay. And sometimes the blessing is to let something go. Yeah. You know, it's the, oh, is that actually happening right now? No, it isn't. Right. Okay. Well, what do I have influence and effect over? Nothing. Yeah. What I'm concerned about is not occurring. So I'm going to have fun and let it be okay. I feel like you're reading me right now with the control thing. (laughs) (laughs) So we're moving yesterday and today uh, in advance of the anticipated um, total lockdown. Um, That seems likely given what's happened in California. By the time this is airing, we may already in Colorado be under um, that those orders. And so it's like control, like everything. I just, I'm feeling anxiety right now. I'm asking these questions of myself. It's all in my whole, like I'm literally holding my breath and holding my stomach in because there's just so much that's out of my control and there's so much disruption and in the world. And then also in my immediate household. So thank you for that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I, my, my clients will see me smiling when we're working with anxiety and depression and they'll say, you know, it's nice to see that you're smiling around this and that as we're having this conversation and I'm getting, you know, and, and they're not having the conversation with me, they're having the conversation with the solicitor at their door you know, uh, of their body called anxiety and they're completing the conversation and the anxiety is leaving and they're and it's not going to ring their doorbell anymore and they finally understand my smile they're like you knew that this wasn't a bad thing happening to me that this was something happening for me and trying to get my attention right and i had been ignoring it you know we ignore these messages we ignore these things um and and so they just get louder. They ring our doorbell four times, you know, uh, and and yet the conversation tends to be fairly quickly. That's why I love these these people that kept ringing my doorbell that day. It's like, oh my goodness! And it was such a quick conversation. Yeah. And then they they went away, which which your anxiety will do too. So yeah. um, the other thing I'll just mention quickly uh, because I see a lot of young people getting diagnosed with bipolar disorder. 
Um, bipolar disorder is a really difficult diagnosis to offer, um, you know, for younger people. But I see a lot of people coming into my office, coming from their psychiatrist or their GP with this diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Um, and bipolar disorder uh, is is in the personality disorder arena, and it's one that gets a reputation that you can't heal it. And I say this very respectfully, in that is a complete opposite experience to what I have in my practice. And I find that it's a dance between um, not anxiety, but but hyper revving and depression, either at a large scale, which is more bipolar one, or at a at a smaller scale, bipolar two. Uh, and it it's usually trauma related. In in trauma, a lot of people think about big traumas, you know, and it can be little traumas that are repeated over time. Uh, some of our biggest little traumas are abandonment, neglect, uh, rejection, these kinds of things. And so, uh, you know, life changes where it's happening to them versus, you know, children being able to influence, impact and control it. Uh, and what I have found is that when you restore somebody's core foundation of self with, like we've spoken about trust, love, safety, uh, you bring resources. Somebody can actually process those big emotions that the system's depressing to cope with. Uh, and you allow them to, um, you know, work with the messenger so that they can bring forward that resource that's being communicated. The bipolar pattern, the cycling stops. Uh, wow. and, and that's, that's a big one. Uh, also, uh, we have an epidemic of diagnosis of ADD, ADHD, and yes, this diagnosis exists. Yes. You can actually see it in brain scans. Uh, however, chicken or the egg, I, I see a lot of those that are, are without some additional coping mechanisms. And when you bring in coping mechanisms for someone who's experiencing this symptomology, those symptoms resolve as well. Uh, so I just want to share that because for all of your listeners who might be experiencing anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, uh, and, and ADD, ADHD, and medication may not be consistently working. When medication doesn't work, it's because you have something that's influencing the biochemistry. So it's not a biochemical brain mm -hmm. function element. It's got an environmental or experiential contribution. So it's, it's so important to recognize, yes, it can be healed. And you do not have to know what event actually caused it. At a subconscious level, that's, that's there, and it still can be accessed and healed. So uh, you're, you're never without a solution. <laughs> so important. I love that. And I just want to kind of in this um, last piece of this interview, delve a little deeper into these coping mechanisms that you talked about because ADD, ADHD is such a, a common diagnosis anymore. And um so can you share with us what these coping mechanisms are that you have found actually help to resolve those? Mm -hmm. Yes. Let's use an example. Uh, as an adult, when someone is having a very strong emotional reaction by you, 
you feel it right in your body. Mm-hmm. You, you're, you're feeling their big reaction. Uh, and it can be uncomfortable, but as adults, we've learned how to hold it. So we can feel like our skin is going to peel off and we can feel really uncomfortable and we'll sit there really still and we'll smile and we'll just pretend like we're good. We're fine, (laughs) but children won't do this. So when there is an emotional something going on, something that is causing a, a big emotional response, either it's happening in their environment or it's happening within them. If it's big, children want to move. They're going to wiggle because they're not yet developed in their ability to tolerate it. It's actually called affect tolerance. It's the ability to tolerate the feelings and the emotions that are, are, are being expressed or experienced in our, in our body, our mind, and our emotional body. Uh, so children won't sit there like little containers. They start wiggling and they'll move into fight, flight, freeze, which turns off their prefrontal cortex. So that, which is the central executor of the brain, it's going to organize any information that comes in and your hindbrain fires. And so what happens is that your brain turns into a ping pong ball, basically, where everything's just kind of going everywhere and you're, and they're wiggling because they're trying to get away from it. And they might be trying to get away from something going on in their environment or something going on within them. But when they are uncomfortable, they want to move. So this looks like inattention. It looks like their inability to focus. It looks like they're hyperactive. But what it is, is they've got something going on that they don't know how to tolerate. And I see a lot of children which meet the criteria for um, being empathic, which is different from being uh, and, uh, you know, having empathy, uh, when you're empathic, you actually feel somebody else's feelings as if they're your own and there's, and, and you don't know how to discern what belongs to you or belongs to someone else. And so a lot of empathic children who basically have super sensitive antennae are picking up things that belong to other people. I had a client that was, um, kiddo client diagnosed, came to my practice with OCD diagnosis, which is obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, and they were actually on the border of being diagnosed with personality disorder. So obsessive compulsive personality disorder, uh, they were in my office. They were not ritualizing and going through some of their obsessive patterns, uh, and behaviors. And then all of a sudden, boom, they just kicked into this intensity and they needed to go over and do their ritual. Mm -hmm. And they had a particular ritual that allowed them to move through that trigger we couldn't figure out what was triggering them. And then the parent arrived to pick them up at the end of their session. And I said to the parent while the child was gathering their things, I said, how's it going? And the parent said, not good. It's not a good, no, not good. And I'm just trying to get it together before, you know, like the kiddo comes out. And I said, oh, well, what's going on? And they said, uh, just had a horrible conversation with my boss, lots of things going on at work, very, very stressful. And, and I said, when did this happen? They said, well, it just happened. And I said, okay, where were you? And they told me where they were. And, and I said, well, when did this phone call come in? Cause they had, had this phone call and they looked at their phone and they looked at the timestamp. Well, I had written down in my case notes when the child showed symptom and, and became triggered. So I went and got my, my notes and I looked at the time and the times matched. Wow. The parent was eight miles away from my office. Yeah but the child was reacting. And I thought, okay, so what we did is we shifted gears. I said, okay, 
I know that you've, you've come in with this diagnosis, but let me teach your child and work with them so that they know affect tolerance, how to tolerate their emotion, tolerate feeling, even if they don't know where it's coming from, how to discern what they want to stay connected to or what they want to, you know, kind of send back to whomever it might belong to. Uh, and then how to regulate it. So tolerate it, but then regulate it so that they can get access to the feeling that they need to be connected with. So I taught them this and all of their OCD symptoms went away and they were able to cope adapt. Uh, they also were um, being looked at for biochemical imbalance, ADD, ADHD, all of these things went. Um, they were also, their teacher kept saying, I think they're on the spectrum. I think they're on the spectrum. Uh, and they were not. Uh, so we had three potential diagnoses that came off of this kiddo as a result of learning affect tolerance, how to tolerate your emotion and how to regulate it into a resourceful state without having to suppress, depress, or avoid it. Um, and I, I see a lot of that with adults and also with children. So honestly, very, very, very seldom do I see a true ADD, ADHD, um, diagnosis. I think it's so important to mention here that the foundation of conscious parenting is for the parent to do their own work and to look at ourselves. And this is just such a powerful example of how the energy we bring and the stories we bring and the all of what we bring to the parenting relationship has such an impact on who the kid how the kid behaves. And so oftentimes, this is what Dr. Shafali talks about, you know, the parents bring the kid in to get fixed. And she's like, okay, that's nice. Um, and it's all about the parent doing their own work. And so I'm actually curious, uh, yeah. did the parent do their own work in this situation? <laughs> or was it more about this highly empathic kid? Because um, the other thing to say there is that we have I've, I keep hearing that this next generation of children that's coming in is much more tuned in than previous generations. So they're picking up on energies that maybe we or, you know, our, you know, parents, grandparents, generations wouldn't have um, thoughts on that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So the antennae for children, the sensitivity, uh, definitely I'm seeing that trend as well, that, that it's heightened. Uh, it isn't a weakness. It is. A, a beautiful gift. Uh, and when we know how to work with it, we can harness that gift. So it's uh, so important if we have children who have that sensitive antenna, they're picking information up that we may not be uh, to normalize it, to also resource it. And if we don't know how to support them, to help connect them with people who will know how to support them. But it, as you're just mentioning, we can't leave ourselves out of the equation. So yes, this parent did do their work, and I and uh, I'm I'm at this moment just trying to think if there are any children that I've ever worked with that I haven't ended up working with the family or the parents, uh, and I'm not thinking of any. Uh, even even parents that I've had that are very resistant, drop the kid off, my kid's broken, fix my kid. Yeah, uh, we end up working together because I don't really think there's anything that 
is designed to be broken or stay broken. Uh, and it's not a judgment situation either. So for any parent who's listening, that's got a child that's going through stuff, this isn't time to shame or blame right. you, right. you know, it's a time to love you and say, wow, if my child doesn't know how to tolerate their emotions or regulate them, I might not either. And it's not that I failed. It's that no one knew how to teach me this either. So it's, it's like a deficit in the environment in which we can't teach somebody what we don't know. Yeah. So what a beautiful opportunity to say, hey, I want to learn. And then what I have parents and children do is practice it together. Yes. You know, when you're feeling something that someone else is going through, ask them, practice all of these things and do it as a family. Uh, and it becomes a whole family well-being and healing experience. Yeah. And never one for shame, blame, guilt, judgment. Right. Uh, only love, appreciation, and opportunity. I agree. I'm so glad you said that because I take for granted that we've we've shared that quite a bit in previous episodes. It's just so important to repeat that the parenting relationship is about and frankly, I believe the human experience is about learning and growing. So the point isn't to be a perfect parent, a good mom, a good dad, whatever. It's to embrace the opportunity to learn and grow together and look at our kids as a mirror and an opportunity to step into more for ourselves and for them. But no shame. No, there's no, there's to take this conversation all the way back to the beginning when you brought up guilt, there's just no, that's a very low vibe energy and there's nothing there uh really the guilt doesn't help and serve any any of us so um yeah I'm really glad that you brought that up guilt is something that I think well actually it's part of the fear spectrum so uh you know guilt is fear for something we've done and fears except for being you know having a fright response to loud noises and and the you know fear of falling all other fears are learned and they really don't serve because they're founded in an illusion. So being guilty isn't offering kindness or contribution to others. It's holding our ability to be kind and contribute back. So yeah, we can just let all that go and say, whoops, messed that up. But now I know, so I could do something different. (laughs) Yeah. And the other thing that I find is that by being less than perfect and, and, and saying whoops, and even just laughing at ourselves and and sharing situations with our kids where, you know, we would be self-critical, but instead just shifting that around to like, Oh, check it out. Well, I blew it on that one. Here's what I'm going to do differently. Our kids also learn to have self-compassion. So it's important that we're kind to ourselves because we're showing them how to be kind to themselves. Yes. Yes. I have a, a pattern that I have discovered because it's come up twice. So that's why I call it a pattern. And it just came up last night, which is so funny. I rolled my eyes at my daughter again, my 17 year old. And she gave me the look. She said, really? She said, again, mom, you're rolling your eyes. And no, you don't get to roll your eyes at me. (laughs) So we think that this is, you know, a teenage thing, but it's a communication thing. And I did it Again, she had actually called me on it a, a, a while back and then called me on it again last night. I went, oh my goodness, thank you so much for calling me out on it. And it's true. And that's not very kind. And I apologize to you. 
And I'm going to, and I, as the adult said, and I'm going to use my words rather than my eyes. And she started giggling, you know, so this is, this is me, you know, basically doing the same behavior I've asked her to never do. Uh, And then she got to say, Hey, you know, and it was fantastic because actually it was a beautiful, deep level of communication through something that started off reactive and inappropriate. And I was the instigator. So yes, we mess it up. (laughs) I have to tell you, I find it so reassuring that even therapists have moments like that with their kids. And I just love that example of an opportunity to show our kids that we're not perfect and they don't need to be either. And we can all communicate and get to a place of really understanding each other and really using the opportunity of parenting to learn and grow together. So I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. We're going to close this show in a little bit of a different way because I loved the idea that Becca shared of doing a three-minute coherence exercise. So we're going to do that together now at the for the last three minutes of the episode because I really feel like I am asking the question, and maybe you are too, of what can we do in this moment? And we're disconnected physically from our neighbors, from our friends, our coworkers, and what we can do is connect energetically with ourselves, bring ourselves into coherence, and really raise the vibe on the planet. That's what we need right now is to shift ourselves into this connected, coherent place that really will help us heal and and really connect as, as one in the oneness that we are. So I'm excited to do that. I'll tell you before we do that, I just wanted to invite you to consider if you know anyone who might benefit from what we've shared on this show, who might have been facing or their kids been facing anxiety, depression, ADD, ADHD, or really could just use some inspiration about how to get through the uncertainty of these times that we're in right now, please pass this episode along. We would love to continue to get the word out. And if you're enjoying this conversation, please do subscribe so we can continue uh, this conversation with you. And with that, I'm going to invite you to get comfortable wherever you are. Even if you're in the car, you can do this. Obviously, don't close your eyes. So we're going to get comfortable, and I'm going to talk you through the beginning of this, and then I'm going to time the music so that the music is going to carry you through the end, and that will be the three-minute mark when you can complete the exercise. So I'm first going to invite you to imagine yourself, like Becca mentioned, in a really safe and loving place and imagine that we're breathing through our hearts. So connect with your heart and we're going to begin to breathe in two, three, four, five, and out two, three, four, five, in two, three, four, five, and out, two, three, four, five. And you continue. And if you notice if you're holding tension anywhere in your body and just relax 
let that go and really let yourself soften into the breath and into this exercise and just continue on knowing that as you come into this place of coherence that this is a state that will make a difference for the people around you in your home and radiating out from there and that you can come back to this practice at any time that you want to bring yourself back into coherence and I would invite you to do so and with that I will say goodbye for this week I hope you have a wonderful week and we will talk with you again very soon